morning, everybody. Like you said, my name is, wow, that was great. We're doing the respond thing today. I like it. You guys are awake. You're ready to go. My name's Michael. I work with the guest services team, so the greeters and stuff work with communications and also your lovely middle schoolers midweek. So my life is pretty busy and really fun, but I love it. And guess what? I'm married to this beautiful and brilliant woman named Lexi, who I'm so grateful to be married to. And guess what? In two months, we're coming up on our one-year anniversary, right? Yeah, it's so cool. And, and so for those of you in here who are married or are thinking about getting married someday, maybe you can recall or you can imagine what like those first few months, that first year looked like for you. And, and let me tell you, this right here, this monstrosity that you've probably been wondering about was our dining table. Okay. I, I, okay, I know. All of you woodworkers here in the audience are jealous of my carpentry, right? This right here is a original USA made 100% recycled pallet from Home Depot. Now on here are a couple two by fours with some nails in it. And, and I built it at first as a workbench. It evolved into our dining table when we got married. And this, this way, super sturdy. This way, not super sturdy. And there's some holes in here and silverware falls through, food falls through. Now, before you go up to Lexi after church today, just know that we have a real table now. We really eat at a nice table now. We don't, we don't use this anymore. But when we did, we hosted our first guests at our house, her parents. Okay, so we invite over her parents and they were gonna bring her, her little sister Bailey, her brother Jacob, they come over and, and here's, here's what we start to do. We realize we've gotta get ready to host these people, right? So we've gotta get the plates, get the cups, get the bowls, you know, the napkins together, the silverware together, get everything ready. And then once we get all our stuff together, we're like, okay, we've got our plates, our napkins, our bowls, all that. And we're like, what do we make? And so I know I am really good at not messing up pasta and sausage. So pasta and sausage was on the menu that night. And so we got everything set up. They come over and let me tell you, the night went great. It went off without a hitch. Like it was like, it worked. This thing did its, you know, did its job. We fit six people around it and it was great. Now, during this whole process, during this whole process of setting things up, I kind of learned something. And it's that when we're setting up a table, it says something, let's see if we can click that. There we go. It says something about the way that we're expecting a meal to go, right? Like if we're gonna set it up and we're having salad, we put a salad bowl out. If we're gonna have steak, we get out the steak knives. If we're going to throw out a candle on the table to like make it smell better in the house, we put out the candle, right? We have all these things that we do to set up a table so that the dinner goes the way that we're expecting it to go. And I think in the same way, we kind of do this with our lives, Right? Like imagine this table is our lives and, and we have these things that we put up and we put out and we put in place in our lives. And, and this is what we're saying when we do this. When, when we set up our lives, it says something about the way that we intended to go. Right? I mean, consider this, like if we were looking at our calendars earlier, right? Like some of us are programmed down to like the quarter hour, some of us down to the minute where we know what's next. We know what we just did. We know what we're about to do tomorrow. We know what we're gonna do in three days. We know we've got to make it to sports practice. We got to take the kids to swimming or we've got to be there on time for the parent teacher meeting, whatever it is, right? Maybe it's getting our budget together or spending time with our wife or whatever it is. We've got the schedule that ends up packed with a lot of really good things. Some of these things are really good. It's a good thing to spend time with your wife. It's a good thing to get your kids to school on time, right? But sometimes these good things in our life can become God things, little g, 
like an idol. We, we've been talking about this throne of our heart, right? That inside of each one of us, we, we have this throne and, and we're kind of like little idol factories and we put things up on the throne of our heart and we start to worship those in place of worshiping God. And so these things that were good on our table that were kind of helping us get where we're trying to go, they can become God things by moving to the throne of our heart. And, and we forget to submit our lives and our plans and everything that we've got going on to God. Now, Today we're going to talk about the idea of humility, right? We're going to talk about humility. And so I'm going to need some grace from you because anytime anybody talks about humility, it can get a little weird, right? Because as soon as I start to say, hey, this is what humility is, it's like you stop kind of being humble. And it's that weird paradox of like if you're humble and you say you're humble, you're no longer humble. So what we're going to do is talk about what Jesus said about humility so that it all works out. And, and here's the great thing. We're going to start at this definition, all right? We're going to try to work from the same definition, and here, here's how it goes. Humility is having an accurate view of God, self, and others. It's an accurate view of God, self, and others. And whenever one of those things gets out of alignment, we start to drift, right? So if we have too low of a view of God, we miss it. If we have too high of a view of self, that's pride. If we have way too low of a view of self, that's also like a form of pride because we're not trusting who God has said that we are. If we have too high of a view of others or too low of a view of others, we're missing humility. And so today, we're going to work from that definition and we're going to see that each time someone encountered Jesus, they learned humility. All right, so we're going to look at three different stories in this text, and it follows last week's text where we talk about the narrow door, right? Anybody remember the smoothie? Like Jesus plus nothing smoothie. That's what we want. That's what we need in our lives. It's only Jesus. Jesus is the only way to right relationship with the Father. And what we're going to see in these three short stories today is that the door is not just narrow, but it's also low. And in order to get in, we've got to bow. We've got to be willing to submit ourselves, to bow before Jesus and submit to him as Lord. So let's jump right into it. This first story is the story of the wrong setup. And it comes out of verse 1 in chapter 14 of Luke. And it goes like this. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. Now, if you've been with us at all in Luke, once you see this idea of like the Sabbath, the Pharisees, and Jesus, we know something's about to go down, right? Like there's going to be some sort of conflict. Something's going to happen. And so the Sabbath, for those of you who are new to church, new around here, a Sabbath is basically this day of rest that the Jewish people had that came out of their Ten Commandments that they would set aside to honor God, to worship God, to think about God. And they had all these little rules, right? So they couldn't like prepare food certain ways. There were laws about cleaning. You couldn't walk certain distances. And so there were so many rules, they couldn't even keep track of all of it. And it's the Sabbath, right? And we also see another part of the setup. It's at the house of one of the Pharisees, one of the rulers of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were some of the religious elite of the day. And these guys were trying to trap Jesus in his words, trying to get him to blaspheme God so they could have an excuse to kill him. So it's on the Sabbath. It's at the house of the Pharisees. And one last important piece of information that Luke wanted us to know was this. They were watching him carefully. 
Probably a more lively transition, or translation of that would be like watching him lurkingly. Okay, so they're sitting there laying in wait, anticipating something to happen because they've set him up. This is totally a setup. And we see that in the next verse. It says this, And behold, there was before him a man who had dropsy. Now, this is not a surprise, right? The, and behold, it's really not a surprise. The guy shows up and he has dropsy. Now, Nobody in here probably knows what dropsy is, right? I had to look it up. You know what it is. There we go. So dropsy is basically an old-fashioned term for this condition called edema. And it's like the swelling of the tissue. And in their profound first-century wisdom and knowledge of physiology, the Pharisees thought that it was attributed to sin, most likely some sort of like sexual sin, okay? So they would look at this man and they would have ostracized him. He would not have been invited to the dinner otherwise. He wouldn't have been allowed to worship certain ways in the temple, would have been a total outcast, but he's there, right? And so he comes up, you see this setup, and the Pharisees have set up this meal, set up this dinner in such a way where they think something's gonna happen. But here's what's so great about what Jesus does. It says that Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees. He responded to them, meaning he knows what they're thinking before they even say it. He knows their hearts, he knows their intentions, and he knows what's going on. And one of the great things about Jesus is whenever we try to control things, whenever we try to set up our lives in such a way, he has this way of flipping it. And he has this way of showing us that he's actually Lord of our lives. And so what he does is flips the whole table back on them because they thought they were going to trap him, but now he is going to turn this whole conversation and show them that he was in control this whole time by saying this, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remain silent. Can you feel the tension? Can you feel that tension in there? When he asks them the question and they start to look at each other and they're like, um, did we make a mistake? What's going to happen? Some of them angry, some of them confused, some of them like, man, we should really rethink the way we do these things. And so they're sitting there because they thought they had set him up. But Jesus flips this whole thing on them and they're silent because here, here's the problem. If they were to say, yes, it's absolutely lawful to heal on the Sabbath, they would be going against their customs and their laws and everything that they were like fighting so hard to say, This is what's true. This is what was on the throne of their heart. This is what they were worshiping. And they would have sided with Jesus. They would have sided with the guy that they were trying to take out. And if they say no, here's what would have happened. They would have been seen as being unwilling to do good or to be compassionate on the day of the Sabbath. So they're stuck in this place where if they say yes, they side with Jesus, game over. If they say no, they're seen as the total jerks that they are. So they stay silent. And here's what happens. It says that Jesus took him and healed him and sent him away. And that took means it's like to grab and to bring close, to grab and to bring close. Each time we see Jesus do one of these healings, do one of these exchanges, he shows his compassion. And he never takes a break from showing compassion because this is his day off, right? Like this is the Sabbath. It was invented by God, okay? Like the Sabbath is the day of rest. And so he could have easily just not done it. He could have easily just not healed, but he chose on his day off to show compassion because he never stops showing compassion. It's his character. It's who he is and it's who God is. God never stops loving us. He never stops showing his compassion. And Jesus reveals that in his actions at this dinner party. Now, thank you. It's his word, right? So here's what happened. They're sitting there, they're watching. And if I'm a Pharisee, I'm like, I think I got off. Like, 
I've got plausible deniability here, right? Like the guy showed up, I didn't say a word, and I, you know, I pled the fifth. And here's what Jesus does. He doesn't let them off the hook. He's gonna address what's going on in their hearts and in their minds. And here's what he says. Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him up? In other words, if little David is running around in Jerusalem and falls in a well, you're going to pull him up, right? If Bessie the ox is marching around, falls into a well, you're going to pull her up. It might not be as easy, but you're going to figure it out, right? Because something of value is in need of rescue. And so when something of value is in need of rescue, you rescue it, right? And so what he's pointing out to them is kind of the ridiculous nature of what they're doing. In fact, if you read in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 4, don't turn there now, but you can go there later if you're into it. It says, if a man is walking down the road and his donkey or his ox falls down, you help a brother out. You help him get the donkey up. You help him get the ox up. So it's in the law, right? It's in the law to do this, but they refuse to say anything. And it says, after Jesus says this to them, it says this, and they could not reply to these things. See, I think the Pharisees had an issue and the lawyers had an issue. And I think that issue was pride. I think that they thought that they could set up Jesus. They thought that they could set up everything in such a way where they could get the outcome that they wanted. They could invite their friends to this dinner, invite Jesus to this dinner, and this guy with dropsy just happens to show up, and they could trap Jesus in his words. But it doesn't work. In fact, Jesus is showing them through this whole exchange that this idea right here, that the door is not just narrow, but it's also low. Because they were there. Like these Pharisee guys, they were there last chapter when they're talking about the narrow door and how it's only Jesus. Jesus plus nothing is the kingdom. And what he's saying to them here is like, it takes humility. We've got to be willing to be humble. And these guys were not willing to submit to Jesus' wisdom, to Jesus' authority. And instead, they're trying to set everything up to get out of it what they wanted. Now, it's not just a story about the great setup. It's also a story about the wrong seat because there's something that happens as these people are walking in to this dinner area. And Jesus says to them, or Luke says this, it says, now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose their places of honor. Now, if you're new here, new to following Jesus, a parable is basically a story. Okay, and and it's a story with practical wisdom and spiritual wisdom, and it's typically hard to understand on purpose. This one, however, is a lot easier to understand, but where it lacks in complexity, it makes up for it in how challenging it is to apply to our own lives. And so what Jesus does is he looks at these people and he saw how they picked their seat. In other words, they come in and they're picking the best seats, how they chose the place of honor. They went and they picked the best seats in the house when they came in and this was not kosher, okay? This is not how it worked in their customs. And here's what he says through this parable. Part one is what not to do. Part two is what to do. So part one, he says, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor unless someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. Common sense, right? And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. 
Now, I was at a wedding on Friday, and if you've been to a wedding or if you've been married, you kind of know that, like, the bride and the groom sit in a certain place, right? Okay, so you've got the bride and the groom. Maybe they're at a sweetheart table, or maybe it's, what, the bridal table, right, where you've got all the groomsmen and all the maids. They're all there, and they're doing the thing. And if I had gone up to my buddy and tried to sit next to him at his table, he probably would have looked at me and, and been a little confused and said, like, I know you're my best roommate for three months, but this is for my best man. And I would have had to ashamed, stand up and take the lock of shame back to the back of the room. Even worse would have been if the wedding coordinator had to come to me, right? Like we don't want that to happen when you're at a wedding. And so he's saying, don't do that. Go, don't go sit at the highest place of honor. Instead, do this. When you are invited, go and sit at the lowest place so that when your host comes to you, they might say to you, friend, move up higher. And then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. Now, in a culture obsessed with, like, pride and shame, and it was like their thing, right, in first century Israel. That was everything to them. This is a much preferable outcome. Okay, it would be way better to sit at the lowest seat and be moved up to the highest seat. In fact, what they did when they showed up didn't just, like, it didn't just have to do with picking a seat, Right? It actually revealed how they related to God because our attitude toward others reveals how we treat God or how we relate to God, how we feel about God, our relationship with God. And so Jesus says this to them, for he who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now this is not just great wedding advice, right? Now you could probably apply this at a wedding and it'd go pretty well, but it's also spiritual advice. It's saying, in this relationship that we have with God, in this kingdom that we're in, don't take the highest place. Don't enter this and think, I deserve to be seen. I deserve to be known. I deserve to be seen as important because that's not how it works in the kingdom. That's not how it works in the kingdom. We've got to go to the lowest place and allow ourselves to be exalted, allow ourselves to be lifted up and to let God do that by submitting to him. And these guys in this story had the same problem as the guys from the last story because the door wasn't just narrow, it was also low. And it's something that they're missing because they're coming in and and they're trying to let their social status be on the throne of their heart. Right? They're, they're moving it from their table to the throne of their heart, and they're worshiping their, their social status over what God is actually inviting us in to do, which is to take a position of humility and let him lift us up. So it's not just the wrong setup. It's not just the wrong seat. But these guys were also the wrong crowd. They were the wrong crowd to be invited to this whole dinner. So Jesus turns his attention from the people who are there and directs his attention toward the man who invited them. And here's what he says. When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends, your brothers, or your relatives, or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. Now, we've got to remember something about Jesus. He's a rabbi. He was a Jewish teacher, and what they typically did was use hyperbole to highlight what they're trying to say. Okay, so he's not saying never spend time with friends, never spend time with your brother, never spend time with your relatives, like even if you kind of wish he had said that, or never spend time with affluent neighbors. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is he's highlighting this idea of motivation. Because if you see what it says at that back half, it says, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. 
Now, if you're anything like me, maybe you've thought about this. Like maybe you've done this where you're like, I know if I invite them over, they're going to bring the really good grape juice and like the, the cheese that like you can't even get at the nugget and it's going to be sweet. And if they come over and bring that food, I might get an invite to their house. And it's, time, it's this like generosity for the sake of reciprocity, right? It's like we're doing it to get something out of it. But what Jesus is saying is that's not the way of the kingdom. That's not what it means to be a part of the kingdom. That's not what it means to really find joy in me. This is something that reflects the empire mentality that we have in our world. And so part one was what not to do. And now for part two, he's going to say what to do. He says this, but when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed, right? Because they cannot repay you. What he's saying is, Don't just invite the person who can get you the next job advancement. Don't invite over the person who's got the boat. Don't invite over the person who's got the good food or the person who, you know, if they come over, maybe you could be better friends and get a discount on your kid's specialized coaching. Whatever it is, whatever you think it is, that's not the motivation. That's not the point. The point is for something way more important, way more valuable that has eternal ramifications, that makes an eternal impact. Because if you look at these people that that are listed here, the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, they have nothing to offer this man, this ruler of the Pharisees. They have nothing to offer him. He's like, what am I going to get from them? Because he would have looked down on them. He wouldn't have wanted to associate with them. But Jesus is saying, these are the people you invite. Because when you invite these kind of people, this this motivation that you're, that you're going to ex- exemplify by doing this is one that is of the kingdom and not of the empire. It's one that is of a right view of God, a right view of self, a right view of others. And this blessing that he's talking about isn't like a health, wellness, prosperity kind of thing. It's not like you're going to like get a bigger house because you invite over the poor, the lame, and the blind. He's talking about joy. He's talking about the joy that comes from blessing others. And we're actually blessed in return when we do that. When we do things for others who can do nothing without, or who can do nothing for us, when we bless people without pretense, we're blessed. In fact, if you guys remember our little like smiley faces, we have like God who's happy, right? God is super happy. And when we find our joy in him, it makes us what? Happy, right? So it makes us happy when we find our joy in him. And when we are filled with that joy, you got all these little arrows coming out of the other smiley face, right? Like it comes out of us. It flows out of us. It's the natural overflow of finding our greatest joy in God. And when that joy that's coming out of us is directed towards someone who does not find joy in Jesus, they end up being able to find joy in Jesus through this kind of relationship, through this exchange where our joy suddenly becomes their joy and they find joy in God. And it's this reciprocation that actually has an eternal impact. If you guys remember our rope, we talk about our rope a lot, right? We've got this rope and you're going to have to put on your imagination caps, okay? So the yellow part goes on forever, right? It never ends, never ends. It just keeps going. The black part is our lives. It's this like short, tiny piece of the rope And this is our time here on earth. This is what we have. This is what we've been given here on earth. And a lot of times, the way that we set up our table is only in view of this black part of the rope. We're only thinking about investing here. We're not thinking about investing in eternity. What Jesus is offering is a better alternative. It's an alternative that says, look, you can set up your table. How about you set up your table in such a way that invests in eternity? 
that makes an eternal impact, where at the resurrection of the just, like it says in that last verse, you see what happened. You see that grabbing coffee with the person who could do nothing for you actually meant something in eternity. To see that you spending the time with that junior high student or that high school student who maybe you were kind of annoyed a little bit, I don't know if any of you have been in that situation, but doing that has an eternal impact in their lives. Being willing to invest in things that we don't get anything out of here because it's going to invest here is what Jesus is talking about. And so in this story, we see the guy who invited everybody over. He was motivated by something, right? He's motivated by pride. Because the kind of people he was inviting over was going to make him look good. He was going to get something out of it, right? Because if they come over, they're going to do something for him. They're going to make him look a certain way. They're going to puff up his ego. It's going to get him to get what he wanted, right? Which was to set up Jesus. And so Jesus is trying to show him that his motivation was not like a motivation of the kingdom. It was a motivation that reflected the empire. And what he's learning out of this is this idea. that The door is not just narrow, it's also low. We've got to be willing to bow. We've got to be willing to submit to him, to worship him as God, and to put him on the throne of our hearts. Not these things that were good things that become God things, but to worship Jesus and Jesus alone. And so let's return to our definition from earlier. It was this one. That humility is having an accurate view of God, self, and others. Now, if we map this to those three stories, we saw that in the first story, they had a messed up view of God, right? They thought that they could trick Jesus, that they could control Jesus, that they could like pull one over on Jesus when really Jesus was in control the whole time. Jesus was supreme. Jesus is the one that we were supposed to submit to. And in the same way in that next story, there was the issue of self, Because they were exalting themselves, taking places of honor, thinking of themselves more highly than they ought to, when Jesus calls us to have an accurate view of ourselves, Not one that's too low or too high, but one that is the identity that he's given us. In the same way that last story, we saw this issue with others and how we were treating others, right? The, The guy invited people over so that he could get something out of it so that he could gain from that exchange. But Jesus is saying, invest in those who can do nothing. Invest in those that you're not expecting to get anything out of and watch God work. How incredible is that when he does things in the lives of people that can, that can do nothing for us. And when we're motivated by the love that we have in him, it has eternal impact. It, it gives us joy. It gives them joy. It brings God joy. This is what's, what's being highlighted this text. So a lot of implications from this morning, but we're going to focus on like three of them. The first one is from the first story. And I think this is where it's got to start because I I put these little, this little R1 next to it. And I think it starts with our relationship with God, because if you've been around here for a while, you know that our vision as a church is to build joy filled communities of faith whose very existence inspires individuals to live the abundant Christian life. Now that life consists of three key relationships, right? There's the deepening relationship with God, the father, a life-changing relationship with those who believe and an engaging relationship with those yet to believe. But it starts with our one on purpose. It starts with that first relationship on purpose because when we begin to develop a submissive heart and we submit to Jesus as Lord, it impacts everything else in our life. 
It changes our one, or sorry, it changes our two, it changes our three. But if we start at our three or we start at our two, we start at this relationship with each other and try to make it better without focusing on this relationship with God, we're going to miss it. We're going to become like the Pharisees. We're going to come with this list of things that we think we're supposed to do to get the outcome that we want, and our table's going to be a mess. But instead, I think we've got to ask this kind of question. What are we trying to get out of this? What are you really trying to get out of life? Are we focusing on that black part of the rope and investing just in today and not thinking about tomorrow? Or are we investing in things that will have eternal impact, that go on forever into eternity? Another great question to ask is who's on the throne? Who's on the throne of your heart? What's on the throne of your heart? What from your table have you moved onto the throne of your heart and has begun to take the place that only belongs to Jesus? The one from the second story is this. When we begin to submit to Jesus Christ as Lord, my seat stops to matter as much. I don't really care where I'm sitting at the table because I'm just glad I'm invited. Right? I don't need to sit at the highest seat. I don't need to be up front. I don't need to be seen. I don't need to be known. I'm just grateful that I found joy in Jesus. I'm just grateful that I'm a part of the kingdom. This is the gift that we've been offered. But there's a question that, that goes along with this is, do you need to be seen? Do you need to be known? Do you need to feel important? I think our world is driven by vanity metrics. Do you guys know what those are? It's the likes on Facebook. My goodness, right? Like we start to measure ourselves with that. It becomes a measuring stick where we're like, oh man, I hit 100 likes on that photo. People really think I'm cool. It's, it's so stupid, all right? Someone just has to click and then you, and you instantly feel better. You guys, this is not what we're living for because this issue of needing to be seen, needing to be known, needing to be valued, God's taking care of that on the cross. He said, you are worthy by dying for us and rising again. So that for every fear that we have about not being good enough, for not being seen, for not being known, there's an empty grave as evidence that we don't have to fear that. That's what he's done for us. And then for this last idea here, for the crowd, I think my motivations begin to change, right? Our motivations begin to change when we begin to submit to Jesus as Lord. We see every interaction with somebody as an opportunity for the gospel, as an opportunity for more joy in Jesus, as an opportunity to point them toward God. It stops becoming about us, what we can get out of the situation, and it starts becoming loving without pretense, doing for others things, then we're not expecting anything in return. So I've got this last question that I want to land on, and I want to invite you guys to kind of explore with me for a minute before we jump into worship. It's this. What's on your table? What's on your table? What, what is it in your life that maybe started as a really good thing, but it's slowly moved to becoming a God thing with a little G, taking the place of God? What is it? Is it, is it our, our work? Is it, is, it our, is it our family sometimes? Maybe we can worship our family too much. Is it, is it our, our status with others? Is it us doing things for others because we know we can get something out of it? What is it that was on our table that maybe started as a good thing, but has been moving to becoming a God thing on the throne of our heart? And here's the reality. His love is so great. It is so great. It's written in the skies. We see it in the ocean. We see it everywhere. And we're going to worship together today. We're going to sing about this idea. And guys, when we hit the bridge, it says this, not to us, but to your name. We give all praise. It's this act of humility saying, it's not about me. It's all about he. 
So as we worship together this morning, let's keep that at the, at the center of our hearts. Let's think about this throne that we have and consider what is on there that we need to pull down and how do we put Jesus on the throne in our lives. Let's worship together.